Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. In our show, we're going to be resuming our conversation with my guest, Emily Varon in our clinician series, showing where we get to go behind the therapy door and dive deeper into the various therapeutic techniques and strategies around sleep therapy in the autism community. In our last episode, we discussed the assessment process involves finding symptoms and beginning steps to create a new sleep routine. This involves an inventory on how the child falls asleep and paying attention to the changes in their sleep environment. We also got to understand how Emily addresses and understands the goals of therapy and how to reach an endpoint. We'll resume our talk today by discussing the challenges of the therapy process and normalizing some of the bumps along the way. What are some of the maybe just inherent or expected challenges along the way that I might experience with my child as we're doing some of these things that we come and, and, and receive help from you? What are some of the you know bumps along the way that we could experience but are normal? Let's see. Well, these are things that we can't even help that have nothing to do with treatment, but inevitably you know, if we're looking at like that infant toddler population, they'll cut yeah. a tooth. I swear on my life. I don't know why <laughs> they will cut a darn tooth in the middle of treatment. And then they're like, what do we do? And I say, you know what, let's just give it a night or two. Let's wait till yeah. that tooth busts through. And then, okay, to your molars, right? The two-year molars. Oh my gosh. I think they're getting, yes, that is going to impact sleep. Let's hold off. Kids get sick. I don't know why yeah. every time oh, they got exposed to COVID this week. I just had this last week, just last week. And we were like holding our breaths to see if that manifested into anything, you know, yes. especially if we have kids in daycare and preschool. And I mean, this, this is the startup of school right now, right? Startup of yeah. school. Everyone's going to get sick. <laughs> I like it. So new, you just expect that these dish. life happens. It's a like, new like, petri dish, right? Yeah. Exactly. Life happens. So, Got so it. I prepare families for that. You know, who knows what's going to, but as far as treatment outcomes, gosh, I almost never experience resistance or huge behaviors because we program ahead of time to make it seamless because I'm doing this mostly in the virtual world. It is not to my clinical benefit and it's not an ethical fairness really mm -hmm. to the family for me to say, okay, do this. They're going to have really bad behaviors, but you just have to work through it. Right. It's not in anyone's best interest. So I take a more slow route of, okay, like, let's say we're changing the schedule at bedtime and it means discontinuing some screen time during the day. Sure. We don't, we don't start at bedtime. I, I start first thing in the morning. I start saying, okay. How much does your child depend on screen time in the first two hours of the day? Let's limit that. Got it. You know, we're going to put some boundaries around that. We can't work at bedtime. We have to work backwards. Let's work. Totally get it. Because yeah. the families have more bandwidth during the day. The child yeah. has more bandwidth. Everyone has more bandwidth during the day. And as much as possible, I try to work with the ABA team saying, hey, we can't use the, the iPad as a reinforcer anymore. We have to do a better index. You have to find other things because this is creating problems at bedtime. We're just really reinforcing good. screen dependency, let's say, right? So we really have to work on some of those boundaries throughout the day. Sometimes when it comes to separation at night, some of those sleep training, I'm using that as a very broad term, but some of those protocols involve separation. If you have a child who follows you around 
the house all day long and is struggling with separation awareness and separation mm -hmm. anxiety, you know, it doesn't have to be disordered. It doesn't have to right. be separation anxiety disorder. It could just be some normal separation anxiety for three and they follow you around the house all day and, and, and they really have trouble separating. That's where we start. Good. We start yeah, this is really practical. I, I really like this. You know, you're, you're, you're normalizing and you're making it, you know, non-stressful and you're kind of starting with where they're at. There's nothing being forced. There's nothing being, you know, as I mentioned before, kind of white, white knuckle. knuckle I love that. I love it. that metaphor. It really is like, and, and parents are scared. They're yes, scared they to try these things. And we don't want any white knuckle flyers, right? We don't, we don't yeah. want them to be so scared that they don't try. Because yeah. sometimes normal is easier than change. Yes. Right? It, it, yeah, that's really good. Really good. So Emily, as we're you know, talking about these treatment approaches and, and the ways you're working with people just so compassionately and thoughtfully and not requiring any big, big changes that are going to lead to, you know, kind of treatment resistance. But instead, these are some things that people can lean into, I think, in a very welcomed way because they make sense and you're very sensitive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're yeah. making very, it's, it's very, very sensitive and you're encouraging them to kind of trust the process a little bit, but you're making it easy for them to mm -hmm. not, not, I think not, not easy per se, but doable to see that there's going to be some results that come doable. from this. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely in, doable. You know, in terms of how long we might work with you and what we might be expecting to see in the end, give us some sense of that. Yeah. So a traditional package would be about two weeks. So okay. we would start off with just some background stuff. I develop a plan. We go through the plan and then I support you every day for two weeks via text, email, phone calls. It's a, wow. it's an intensive two week program. Because I'm a BCBA and we have certain ethical guidelines to go by, I don't leave you until you have achieved your goals, until we have okay. achieved, let's say, sleeping through the night or transitioning to the child to their own bed or, you know, whatever those goals are that we set out from the very beginning. Like we talked about, what are your goals? What are your sleep goals? What do you want sleep to look like ideally, sustainably? for, you know, at least the next five to seven years, let's call it yes. right. Once we've achieved your goals, most of the time they're achieved within those two weeks. Really good. If we have an outlier, then obviously I, I don't just stop treatment. Then we pivot and we go, okay, what's not working. Oftentimes I will pause our services and say, okay, we need to pause. And then I will bank those like the week and a half we have left or the week we have left. If the child gets sick, if a family tragedy happens, if, you know, I mean, look, I was working with a family last year, they got an awful leak in their kitchen and they had to move out of their house <laughs> and they go, but you know, how are we going to work on sleep? I was like, oh, forget it. <laughs> If it's not a molar, it's a leak. Yeah, it's something. forget it, right? Like just forget it and we'll bank the, that time and or, or we'll just start over. That's or just start over. I mean, sometimes like, like you said before, it's like, you just have to live your life and you know, like life happens right. and right. you can't control that stuff. So it's not, you know, it's not a hard and fast two weeks. It's a flexible yeah. two weeks, but the treatment shouldn't last much more than that. As long as we have, you know, caregiver buy-in is yes. really most of the work is like, Hey, I'm committed to this. This sounds doable. You're going to hold my hand. We're going to be working with this together. I'm not going to feel left alone. I'm not going to feel abandoned. I'm going to text you every morning and let you know how the night went well, what didn't go well. Should we pivot? Should we not pivot? Should we just move into phase three instead of, you know, hanging out here at phase two or something like that? And typically by the end of two weeks, we're done. And then I always welcome families to reach back out to me anytime free of time. They just have a 
you know, just a simple question or something like that, you know? Well, I, I love the way you're practicing. I, I love the flexibility, <laughs> but I also love your commitment. You're right alongside them and you're going to yeah. stay with them through the process. And when I hear things like this, I, I, I hear, you know, this is promising and hopeful. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig-time, make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com slash BHT. That's hellotriad.com slash BHT. And then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. That's app hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. That's really good. You know, you were saying a moment ago, sometimes how you work with the uh, ABA teams and, you know, other clinicians. I had mentioned in my introduction as well that you also do professional trainings Correct. And consultation to include intensive staff trainings, weekly individual supervision, weekly group supervision, goal mm -hmm. development, caregiver collaboration protocols. Awesome. I, I would love to have you walk us through these and give our listeners a sense of what they might benefit in, yep. in being maybe able to work with you as clinicians themselves. Yeah, for sure. So first and foremost, if the client is already receiving ABA services, part of that two-week protocol would be to work with the ABA team and just have some calls, get permission to share information and give the team some things to work on, such as healthy separation during ABA sessions. How do we work on terminating screen time? You know, how do we get some alternative sensory input? You know, what, what else do they like? Do the preference assessment. I, I'm really limited in being able to do the preference assessment from, from a Zoom format. We can do it sort of, you know, checkbox sort of thing, anecdotally speaking about it, but the ABA team is really equipped to be doing that stuff hands-on on the ground to do those preference assessments if we have a child with a low repertoire, let's say. So that's sort of one way that looks. The, the other component of my work that I do is teaching BCBAs to do what I do. And so that is separate from client treatment. And that is really the meat and potatoes of what I do. And, and the thing that I get the most joy out of, because I feel like, you know, I, I can treat families. I can treat families. I've been treating families for 22 years, but it's sort of giving the fish away. That's right. right? Instead of teaching, I mean, I'm teaching each individual family how to fish, so to speak. Yeah. But, you know, as far as the ASD community, I could only treat so many people a week. That's right. But if I teach other BCBAs to do what that's I right. do, now that's an exponential reach. You got a whole lot of people that are fishing. Or teaching, or teaching how to do it. Yeah, that's yes. wonderful. And they're teaching at a, a very mindful, high level yeah. beyond just ABA strategies, right? Because right. we can put extinction into place at bedtime, but that doesn't check any of the boxes for me. Well, that's really an interesting piece because, you know, you would think that there's all these wonderful BCBA approaches and, and, and it's a phenomenal field. You guys are so good at what you do in these areas. 
But you're talking about what if we make sure that part of our assessment always requires some evaluation of the foundational piece that can help either create some challenge for the daily treatments with folks or can actually really enhance. And that's that sleep piece. Yeah. If we can foundationally have this in place, what a great cornerstone to build everything else upon. Yeah. So I love the idea of trainings. Continue with us for me. Right. So I have a lot of different options. So I asynchronous or just online CEUs for BCBAs who just want to educate themselves, okay. uh, which is great. Those are available online. You can just readysetsleep.com and it'll say like shop CEUs or, or Good. CEUs or something. I don't know what my website says, but go to the CEUs. So that's kind of on the front page right there. You can kind of look at those yourself. I have a sleep pro bundle where you basically go through three CEUs, including Good. ethics and you can very easily well verse yourself or (laughs) educate yourself on some of the things that we're talking about today. So that would be the individual seeking that out. And then I also do group CEUs. So that would be a, an ABA team asking me to come in and present this information to their teams. So now we're talking about group, group training. So that would be two or three hours of a CEU, sort of a one-off where they where, And I like those because it gets the ABA team all speaking the same language when it comes to sleep and then they can support each other. So good. And then the last kind of bucket I have is really creating sleep treatment programs in-house for ABA companies so that we identify some sleep specialists, we can call them, is who really take a deeper dive into some of the research, the more complex and complicated cases that aren't so, you know, I mean, everything we've talked about so far is the most common things, but you know, in our population, we have some really severe sleep issues that are just tearing families apart. And Mm. so those aren't as easy. So how to pull those cases apart. And we use case studies and samples. And I offer ongoing training to the selected behavior analysts who choose to come through that through their ABA program. So the team basically calls me in and I, I create a program. So if I'm that person right there where I have kind of a uniquely challenging case, mm-hmm. you're walking me through in the same way you might walk the family through kind of a, you know, a very hands holding kind of very present, the same kind of thing you're talking about here when I have a, a case that might seem treatment resistant or somehow mm-hmm. yep. extremely problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And so we work on how do we problem solve that? What questions do we need to ask? How do we analyze whether the family is on board with changes or not? Do we do we have to maybe be a little bit more aggressive with treatment because there's health risks involved or safety risks or, um, you know, we have self-injury problems and how do we work backwards from there where we're setting everyone up for safety in addition to, you know, our clinical outcomes of achieving better sleep? So for a good example of something that wouldn't fall into something like we were talking about would be someone with a completely off schedule where we have like a 16 year old who sleeps all day and is awake all night. Okay. So that's an outlier, right? That's a definite outlier. That's not common, but it happens. And it's happened a couple of times in my practice. Now in my 12 years, has it happened often? No, it's happened probably three times. But I want to make sure that people have the tools to really pull apart that onion, peel it back. I would imagine that's very challenging because by 16 or in their teen years, that's got to be very challenging. Those are are some pretty ingrained habits, patterns, and ways of relating. And as we get older, how to navigate medications. Which, which medications are most common to mm. the ASD community and also impede 
sleep and how do we communicate with caregivers and medical professionals in that way? When do we set the families up for success if we know that this could be at the end of the day, a lifelong problem that isn't able to easily be solved depending on their diagnosis, let's say. Mm-hmm. Angelman syndrome is very notorious for disruptive sleep. And, and often we, we never see any remedy from that, from some of those sleep problems that we see with that particular diagnosis. So not just on the autism spectrum, but you know, in the ABA mm-hmm. world, we get all kinds of diagnoses. We're autism heavy, but we mm-hmm. still get kids who are medically fragile. Yeah. How do we work with the medically fragile population? Can you speak to that just a bit? If I'm a professional coming you know, to you for some consultation and help, and I maybe haven't considered how the medications my patient is on that, that could be impairing some sleep, give us some sense of some of the common medications that, that these children might be on and how they could be impeding of the very sleep that we're trying to change, but I haven't thought about yet. <laughs> the most common is asthma medications, stimulants, mm-hmm. ADHD. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right there. So, I mean, that's sort of like the largest class of medications that I see impacting sleep. And, you know, I, I, you know, that's asked in, in the initial assessment, those are the things where, you know, they're taking their, you know, Alupent or they're on, you know, some kind of breathing treatments right before bed, yeah. you know? And so then it becomes a question of, okay, can we work with timing? I don't have the answer to that. I don't know if we can work with timing. We have to ask the physician if it's okay to work on timing of those things. Can they have their breathing treatments first thing in the morning or do they need them three times a day? And then setting the families up for some reasonable expectations where if there's no choice but to give their stimulant at bedtime, (laughs) isn't that common, but let's just say, or let's say they're on a mood stabilizer or let's say they're on some sleep aids, sleep medications, because they become very aggressive in the middle of the night, you know, and then they wear off and then the family is left with, you know, a 2 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. wake up because something wears off. And now we have aggression at 3 a.m. You know, that's complicated. That's not tough. Yeah. We don't talk about that in my CEUs. (laughs) That's, that's, that's a deeper dive. That's a deeper dive because it is so much more individualized and, and, and so many more variables that you just, I mean, there's just so many more variables there. And sometimes it's a medication I've never even heard of. And I got to yeah. go to Google and look up the side effects and go, Oh, that fourth side effect is alertfulness or sleepiness or, or whatever the word is where it like, right, right. Uh, you know, a sleep, a stimulant or prevents sleep or whatever it is. Sure. Maybe it's down there, but I, you know, we have to ask the questions of the physician. Now we go, now this is another variable that we could be potentially working with that we may not be able to control. Mm-hmm. In which case, how do we get the caregivers some sleep? Absolutely. If I'm a, you know, a colleague coming to you for some consultation and training, how would you encourage me to think about some of the sleep aids that either my patient is on or could be on to yeah. help benefit their sleep? What are your thoughts on sleep aids? I usually ask why they were put on it in the first place, which may seem like a stupid question. <laughs> I just want my kid to go to sleep. You yeah. Know, I, I mean, I just... it may seem like a stupid question, but you know, if they were, let's say, put on it because of sleep latency, right? Mm-hmm. Delayed sleep onset. 
I ask, you know, hey, what's what does their screen time look like? Yeah, so you're doing those, the same kind of, <laughs> let, let's do some practical approaches that are non-medication driven. Maybe they don't need the medication, but if it's a prescription, like if it's over-the-counter melatonin and the family was like, yeah, I tried this because my neighbor tried it and I thought it would be a good idea. Then I feel okay as a clinician going, yeah, you know, like you chose to get on it, you know, like if you choose to get off it, you know, I'm, I'm sure it would, you know, fall into the do no harm category. You might not have to take the melatonin. Usually the parents go, yeah, it doesn't work anyway, but okay, fine. But if it's a prescription, if it's something that's been provided by a physician, yeah, I usually don't touch that. I usually say, here's some questions I'd like you to Good. ask the physician Good. or, Hey, can we have a conversation together with the physician, you know, schedule that time out and, you know, talk about, Hey, guess what? You know, I learned that he's on this medication, but that he also has screen dependency mm-hmm. or she, or that they have a trampoline in their bedroom, or, you know, something like that. I say, Hey, I'd like to try some of these non-invasive, you know, strategies, but I'm not going to be able to know whether it's a, having an effect unless we're not on the medication what is your opinion about that? You know, yeah. and saying, you know, can we hold off on medication for a couple nights and see if some of these behavioral approaches result in, in what we're looking for? You know, sometimes the physician says yes. Sometimes they say no. Sometimes the children are on the sleep aids because they're aggressive at bedtime. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so they'll prescribe some clonidine or something like mm-hmm. that to calm them and to help them sleep. You know, it's not always an Ambien or a Lunesta mm-hmm. or something like that. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a different kind of a sedative. But, you know, the problem with sedatives is twofold. One, sedative sleep is not sleep. Right. It's sedation, just like if you were, you know, going under for, you know, getting your tonsils removed, you're sedated, right. but you certainly don't wake up feeling rested because right. <laughs> you haven't had your natural cycles of sleep. So we have to remember that sedative sleep is is not sleep in the health beneficial sense of the word. And we also have to understand that these medications are not always long lasting. And so they they have, you know, kind of a half life and they wear off. And so then what do we do when what precipitated sleep? So back to the original conversation, what precipitated sleep, which was that feeling of sedation or that feeling of sleepiness was not generated naturally. And so now the brain is unable to generate it naturally again later on in the night. Really good. Yeah, those are some really good thoughts and just kind of had to piece through this in a way that could be so informative. And and maybe there are some things that could be tweaked or changed or considered. And yeah, yeah, really good. You know, so let's, let's kind of shift a little bit. I know we're kind of winding down for today, but I would love our listeners, both parents that are interested and also practitioners that could be interested and could benefit from you. How can we learn more about you and your work and Ready, Set, Sleep? Yeah. I mean, readysetsleep.com is the best place. You can reach out to me directly there. You can email me through the contact page. You can look at the CEUs. You can check out the service page to see all of the different buckets that I kind of serve from. Scroll all the way down. You know, I do treat clients directly, but you'll see all of the other services that are available to ABA teams and ABA companies first and foremost. Again, because that's sort of what I'm most passionate about is disseminating this information and having it become common knowledge Mm -hmm. so that people don't have to Google every single thing (laughs) and people have a broader view of sleep and, and how to treat sleep problems in the ASD community. And that, you know, just because we have a diagnosis of autism doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a lifetime of, of course, there's Um, some good hope in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in my 12 years of doing this, I've maybe had one client that I've haven't had any success with. 
I mean, really, there is at least to some degree, right? If we don't eventually get the child sleeping better, we can at least get the caregiver sleeping better. Yeah, good. Right. Because sometimes it's just not going to be possible for the client just because of whatever extenuating circumstances, physiological, medical, you know, medication, whatever the, the case yeah. may be diagnosis wise. But, it, but at least we could chip the tip of the iceberg with quality of life for at least part of the household. That's really good. Well, you're doing some great work. Congrats on the things you're doing and the people that are benefiting. And it's been a joy as always to be with you on the show. Thanks so much for coming back and giving us kind of this clinician series yeah. view and uh, helping us do some deep dive into this. It's been great to be with you today. Thank you. Always such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So nice. Hey, I want to thank you, our listeners as well, for joining Emily and me today. It's always great to have you with us. And regarding this episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other podcasts can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So go check out our webpage and tryathq.com slash BHT and explore our archive of podcasts and resource materials. I want to thank you again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.